Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. I'm Ward Cowan from UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, and I'm moderating this session on pediatric rare diseases. We have three great speakers today. Um, Dr. Uh, Diana Farmer is an internationally recognized fetal and neonatal surgeon and chair of the Department of Surgery at UC Davis. She's going to tell us about making miracles come to life through stem cells. Uh, Rosa Baquetta is a recognized expert in a very rare uh, primary immune deficiency disease called IPEX. And her laboratory at Stanford University is working on two different gene therapy approaches to treat this disorder. And that's what she's going to be talking to us about uh, today. But first, I'm going to introduce um, a very special guest speaker, Hawash Priyank, who is the father of Ronav, also known as Ronnie, who is an absolutely incredible three-year-old boy with X-linked severe combined immunodeficiency disease who was diagnosed following a positive newborn screening test shortly after his birth. SCID, as we call it, severe combined immunodeficiency disease, is a very rare disease occurring in about 1 in 60,000 live births in the U.S., so about 75 babies are born with this disorder per year, and XGID represents about 30% of all of those uh, babies. Uh, bone marrow transplantation has been the only definitive treatment for these babies who generally die in the first year of life without it. Newborn screening has really changed the outlook for patients with severe combined immunodeficiency disease since we know that babies who are uh, born with this and have infections at the time of their transplant have a poorer outcome than those who are infection-free. So a positive diagnosis following newborn screening that generally we get within one to two weeks of birth gives these babies an optimal chance at a normal life. However, we also know that there are issues with bone marrow transplantation uh, from a healthy donor including rejection of the graft and graft-versus-host disease. These problems are especially common when an HLA-matched sibling donor, kind of the ideal donor, is not available. And um, this occurs in more than 80% of uh, patients who don't have a matched uh, sibling donor, um, and alternative donors must be used. This has led to the development of gene insertion therapy into hematopoietic stem cells from the patient using a lentiviral vector carrying the cDNA for the affected gene. A mutation in the IL2RG gene results in XGID. The XGID gene therapy clinical trial is funded by CIRM and it's ongoing at UCSF, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and Seattle Children's Hospital. Ronnie was the second patient enrolled at UCSF and the fifth overall patient in this trial. He's done great with development of completely normal T and B cell immunity and is living a normal life. It's really a pleasure to have Pawash uh, come here to talk with us about Ronnie's experience with gene therapy. Hi, 
I'm Kevin McCormack. I'm the Communications Director at CERN. And because this next session is about pediatric and rare diseases, we're delighted to be able to have Pawash Parank join us and talk about his experiences. Hi, Pawash. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good, Kevin. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. So tell us about Ronnie and your experiences with stem cells. I mean, how you came introduced into this world that you hoped never to have to see anything about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Kevin. Um, yeah, Ronov, um, Ronov uh, was born on March 9, uh, 2017. And, um, and uh, you know, everything started very perfectly. He was perfectly a very healthy child and everything was going perfectly fine. Everybody was very happy in the family. But within a few days, within six to seven days, we, uh, we started getting reports that he is an immunodeficient kid. And they were they were terming him as uh, you were they were they were telling the test results are skid uh, positive, and that was really uh, shattering. It was uh, devastating for all of us in the family. We we didn't know initially what really skid is all about and how severe it is. But as as we start uh, doing more and more googles about it, and when we started hearing from you know his pediatric doctors and and other doctors in in uh, in Folsom, California. We knew that this is something which is definitely going to change our life forever. Um, uh, for, our, that, for our viewers, sorry to interrupt, but for our viewers, um, SCID is severe combined immunodeficiency. It's a really, it's a rare immune disorder where children have no functioning immune system. So even a simple infection or cold could be fatal. And obviously in the time of COVID, um, that could be really life-threatening. Sorry. Oh, absolutely. Wash. Absolutely, Kevin. Yeah, that is what we were hearing from our doctors as well, that this is, uh, this is something which you're your child has and he doesn't have immune system to fight any kind of virus in the outside world and 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 you know we we need to treat him as quickly as possible right now in the beginning of uh, beginning of his uh, phases like couple of weeks he will have the immune system from his mother um, and and that would make him survive for a couple of weeks but after that it would it could be it could lead to anything any kind of infection would be a trouble so we uh, we were um, having a conversation with UCSF uh, Benioff Children's Hospital from San Francisco. We got a call saying that you know I think I think the report gets mailed out to different agencies in United States, and we started getting calls from them saying that you know you will have to come here as quickly as possible and get this kid. Uh, you know, let's talk about the next option because we we realized from all of the doctors that were talking to us that there is not as such a potential treatment other than bone marrow transplant at that point of time because they didn't know what kind of a skid it is probably. So we got a call from UCSF and we asked, we were asked to rush over there. So we, we reached there and the discussion started with the bone marrow transplant, which started with, you know, all kind of positive symptoms, all kind of negative of, you know, bone marrow transplant, what is graft versus host disease situations, you know, when somebody gives you the a bone marrow to generate the immune system in child's body, it could react positively, it could react negatively. So all those kinds of discussions were really, really, you know, it was it was devastating for, for both of us, I, me and my wife in, in, in the room, and all of the doctor panels were, was there. Um, so this is when they started doing the further testing on, on Ronov, and, uh, and they found that he is X-linked his kid which fortunately at that point of time had, uh, had the gene therapy option as a clinical trial. This is when we were introduced about the gene therapy. We were kind of, Kevin, already reading about it somewhere in the blogs that, you know, if you have a skied child uh, somewhere in, in Europe and somewhere in other nations, they are treating with, uh, with, with gene therapy where genetically they would take something, take the DNA out of uh, Ronnie, fix the genetic disorder and then put it back in him. So we were kind of thinking about it already, but then 
the the Axlink test kit result that came out gave us hope that UCSF was one of the hospital who was doing the trial um, in in correspondence to with with CIRM. Um, um, that is when CIRM was introduced to us. That uh, Ronoff could also go with the same kind of treatment. That was really really. Uh, something which we felt really good because we were already kind of reading a good materials out of it. We were we were knowing that you know something which would be taken out of Ronnie, fixed it, and then given back to him could probably really work really well. In compared to bone marrow transplant, for what we were hearing about it, like graft versus host disease and infections and all those kind of thing. So that how is the ago, how long ago was the treatment? Um, so March, we got admitted March, 2017. And, uh, I think three months of time is required for a child to be three months old so that he can get a small amount of chemo to create that space where he can get the gene therapy, uh, treatment. So three months that, and then there is a wait time for, uh, you know, for, for when the T cells would come up, when the immune system would come up in total, we were with Ronnie in the hospital for over a six months, over six months of period. So we got discharged in September. We got admitted in March and got discharged in September. But the journey really didn't end over there because there are so many components of immune system that needs to develop in Ronnie's body. But yes, he had uh, he had the positive immune system after gene therapy within within three months of time. How's he doing yeah. today? He is really, really doing good, uh, Kevin. He is, uh, you know, he has been good. I mean, so we never saw him infected with any kind of uh, disease, to be very honest with you, because he was in the beginning, he was in the hospital, he was playing, he was growing over there. And uh, and then we got him treated with the gene therapy. Uh, you know, obviously, after gene therapy, we had to do the IVIG and other things for B cells to come up. These are some technical things that, that needs to happen in the body. But overall, he he has been healthy baby throughout his journey. He is really, really doing good. We take him like everywhere. We take him to parks. We take him to malls. We take him to, you know, shopping complexes, anywhere. Like he is doing as good as any other children would be doing with the normal immune system. So that is, um, you know, that, that is such a relieving, relieving thing for us. Like, uh, you know, because it's, it's such a relief uh, with, you know, a uh, sense, of, uh, sense of feeling in, in, my, in our head that, you know, gene therapy is something which we went forward with. And it's really working great for Rani. He's really, really doing very well. Yeah. When you were making decision, did you feel that you had enough information? Because I know that there's a lot of pressure in a very short amount of time to make that kind of decision about something that was still quite experimental. Yeah, absolutely, Kevin. Uh, we were given a huge documentation by UCSF. Uh, it, it had uh, like all the you know details about it. But obviously, they clearly said since it's a clinical trial and very, very few patients have gone through it. I think uh, ADI-SKID was one of, the, one of the clinical trials of CIRM, which was already happening at UCLA. And, and they, they were giving all those kinds of feedbacks, but the documentation was really good. And it, and it showed all kind of, you know, the procedures and what will happen next. But obviously the data, when, when you talk about the data, how many patients have you really treated with this? What are the results after five years? What, what has happened with the vector that has been used? Those informations were not quite, you know, backed up with the huge amount of data. But but we were, you know, the you know your heart talks to you when you are talking about your child, when you're talking about your treatment of your child. And our hearts was telling us that if if genetically, if you are you know correcting the sequence of a DNA and then giving back to the patient, it would definitely be better than you know giving it from somebody else. So that that feeling was always there. And that's why I think that with, with that gut feeling, we went forward with it. I, that, that was the you know, heartbeat. 
Right. And having seen Ronnie and, and being around him, I know that he has so much energy and so much enthusiasm. He's a joy to see and a joy to be around. Wash, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We really appreciate you taking the time today. And now we're going to go into the session on pediatric and rare diseases, where we're going to be hearing from some of the researchers who are doing this work, who are not only changing lives, but they're saving lives. So we'll see you again a little bit later. Absolutely. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for this invitation. I'm glad that I'm part of this session. Thank you. Thanks, Pawash. Greetings. I'm Diana Farmer. I am a fetal surgeon and a scientist, and I am here today to tell you about some amazing discoveries that we have made with the help of CIRM, our California Stem Cell Agency. So what is fetal surgery? Fetal surgery is that area of medicine where we take care of babies in the womb. We take care of babies before birth. And if you think about 60 years ago, when your parents or your grandparents were born, they really had no idea what, whether they were going to have a boy or a girl, whether the baby was going to be okay. What, what did they do? They counted fingers and toes. But then along came an amazing technology called ultrasound, where we could look inside and see problems in babies before birth. So we've been treating babies before birth now for many years, but only recently have we started thinking about babies who weren't gonna die, but just have some serious disability. And that's when I got interested in spina bifida. So what is spina bifida? Spina bifida, first of all, is one of the most common birth defects, even if you haven't heard about it. The good news is most babies don't have any birth defects, they're completely normal. But occasionally, something doesn't go right. And in this case, four children every day in the United States, and even more in other parts of the world, are born with a condition where the spinal cord does not close normally. In normal development, the spine closes over the spinal cord and the baby's back is completely closed and the spinal cord is protected. But in spina bifida, that fails to occur and that spinal cord is exposed in utero. That means it's exposed to all the amniotic fluid and it can bump up against the side of the uterus. It just has a lot of trauma during gestation. And the result of that is that when the babies are born, they're paralyzed. For years, it was thought there was nothing that could be done until we asked the question, what if we operated before birth and protected that spinal cord during the rest of gestation? Could we make it better? And that's what you see in the lower column there. I apologize for it being a surgical picture if you haven't seen one of these before, but that is the back of a fetus in utero being operated on to close that defect. So we did a fancy study called the MOMS trial, the management of myelomeningocele in the early 2000s that asked that question. If we operated on children before birth, did they have a better outcome than the children that got operated on after birth? And lo and behold, what we discovered was that indeed this was true 
that the babies who were operated on before birth for the first time ever had a better neurologic outcome. They were able to move their legs more than they did if they didn't have that surgery. And for the first time, it showed that this paralysis wasn't fixed, but there was some hope. Unfortunately, 60% of the children did not have any improvement. So that led us to ask, well, if we could get a little improvement, maybe we could get more. This shows you a picture of this landmark paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine showing the effect that you would get if you operated on these babies before birth. So we asked that question, if we could get a little bit of improvement, could we in fact get more improvement or in fact repair the damage that was already done with using biologically active stem cells at the time of that fetal repair. So we went back to the drawing board to see what we could do. This involved the collaboration of stem cell scientists and bioengineers to work together in this new field of fetal regenerative medicine. Now, as a fetal surgeon, I have always been fascinated with the placenta. Here was this amazing organ that grew in just nine months and then seemed to be done with its job. And we just discarded it after birth. It's formed from fetal tissue. And in fact, we used to diagnose certain genetic disorders in babies by doing what's called chorionic villus sampling. It's a way to get a little sample of tissue without injuring the fetus but that has the same cells as a fetus to tell us what's going on. So we knew that we could access these important placental tissues before birth if needed. So we started studying these amazing cells that came from the placenta. And we learned, kind of not surprisingly, that they had unique properties. They were able to grow faster than ordinary mesenchymal stem cells that we used to get from the bone marrow. And if you think about it, it's kind of logical. They're younger. They're not quite embryonic stem cells, but they're not fully adult stem cells. So they, they act kind of like cells in between. They secrete an amazing amount of what we call sort of magic stem cell juice, the special paracrine secretion, the special stuff that helps cells grow and develop. And this is just one example here in the bottom that compared to bone marrow cells in the red, our placental stem cells secreted a lot more of this really important material called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's just something that helps nerve cells grow. So we thought we were onto something with these special cells. We went back to ask this question, okay, would this work? And it just so happens there's a really good model of spina bifida in fetal sheep. And if you look at these pictures, you can see that the human spina bifida looks really similar with the, that exposed spinal cord I talked about and the sheep spina bifida. And in fact, when the fetal lamb is born, it looks very similar to the way a human with spina bifida looks when they're born. That poor spinal cord is exposed to everything. 
And if you think about it for a minute as a human body, our brain and our spinal cords are the only organs that are completely encased in bone. It's, they need to be protected. So we found a pair, a pregnant sheep who had two twins and we operated on both. And on one fetal lamb, we did our experiment with the stem cells and we repaired the defect. And in the other fetal lamb, we repaired the defect just with the regular material with no cells. And let me show you the miraculous and amazing results that we found. It's a little hard to believe. The lambs with stem cells are able to walk completely normally, whereas the lambs that don't have any stem cells are unable to walk at all. Again, you can see that that lamb with stem cells is almost walking normally. So this was so amazing, we could hardly believe it. So we went back and did it again. We treated more lambs with stem cells and we kept finding the same thing over and over, that the lambs that got the stem cells were able to walk and the ones that did not were unable to walk. So for the first time, it looked like we actually had the possibility of a cure. So it turns out that bulldogs also get spina bifida. We were really surprised. You don't hear about it very often, but it turns out that when baby bulldogs are born with spina bifida, there are some rescue centers that will um, take care of these bulldogs. And interestingly, they look very similar, again, to human babies who are born with spina bifida, those back legs below the area of the spinal cord lesion are paralyzed and or partially paralyzed and can't move. And when they get older, just like children with spina bifida need wheelchairs because they can't support their weight, they even make bulldog wheelchairs as well. And if you look at the um, MRI studies, you also see that there's very similar findings in the human spinal cord up at the top and the bulldog spinal cord uh, underneath it. So then we did the same thing with, when we treated, we started to treat some of these bulldogs. Now these bulldogs are treated after birth because we still don't know how to do fetal surgery in bulldogs, but we wanted to see if maybe even those dogs could be helped. And as you can see here, this is Spanky. He's our first bulldog that we treated. When you see him walking around, he's a little unbalanced in the back and he walks on the flat, the full part of his leg, his lower leg, which isn't quite normal. And he's a little unbalanced. But eight weeks post-op, you see an improvement. Here's Spanky hopping around. He's more up on his toes and walking more like a normal bulldog. So with this information and this experience in these two large animals, we manufactured cells, we got help from CIRM to do the special testing that's required to get approval from the FDA. And we are happy to report that we have approval and that our plan is to start testing this amazing cell therapy in human beings this January. We are gonna do the same operation that we did and that we currently do 
for babies who are diagnosed with spina bifida before birth. But this time, when we repair the defect, we're going to repair the defect with a patch that contains the stem cells that we have previously manufactured from a placenta. And we're very excited that for the first time, we might be able to not just prevent further damage, but in fact, repair the damage that has already occurred and prevent paralysis in these kids. Wouldn't that be amazing? We're pretty excited. We think we're onto something special. I just wanna thank all of the people who've been working on this over the last 10 years with the support of CIRM and other agencies. And we can't wait uh, to share our results, hopefully uh, sometime in the next year. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you today, and I'd be delighted to answer questions. Hi, everyone. I am very pleased to be here today to have the possibility to tell you about our project towards a cure for IPEC syndrome with two different approaches engineered T-reg replacement or stem cell uh, gene editing. So monogenic diseases of the immune system are uh, represent about 400 of um, among the 7,000 monogenic diseases and manifest not only with immune deficiencies, meaning increased susceptibility to infections, but also with autoimmunity, depending on the different genes that are involved uh, by the uh, genetic impairment. And uh, importantly, uh, so the, the one category of this uh, um, disease are the tiregopathies, so they, the, in which uh, really the genes that are impaired uh, are impairing the function of Treg cells, very important cells to regulate the immune system, and in particular FOXP3 is the gene that is mutated in IPEX syndrome, uh, of which we are going to talk today. In IPEX patients, what happens is that the T-regulatory cells normally um, develop within the thymus during the uh, fetal life and uh, soon after birth. They are impaired because of this transcription factor, which is essential for their function, is not working. And therefore, this causes their inability of these dysfunctional T-reg cells to control T-effector cells, which by um, consequence, they attack the different organs, uh, not recognizing uh, the self anymore, and uh, we, in particular, they attack pancreas, uh, skin, gut, and kidney generated severe enteropathy, eczema, type 1 diabetes, uh, and you know, nephropathy and uh, autoimmune hepatitis, and so on. This disease, importantly, is uh, as a fatal outcome if is not rapidly diagnosed and treated, and actually this is probably what happened uh, in the past. Um, the disease has an age onset uh, very early in life. As you can see, most of the patients um, basically have the onset of the disease within one year and half of them within the first month. And definitely uh, the um, awareness of the disease has also increased, has also been reflected in the increased incidence of the disease. Besides the main triad of symptoms, which is diarrhea, 
bacteria type 1 diabetes and eczema in the progression of the disease many other organs can be affected and of course there is a very severe failure to thrive and interestingly uh, IPEX is uh, the disease among all the immune regulatory disorders in which type 1 diabetes is more frequent. So what happened to these patients? What do we have right now for uh, their treatment? The approaches are essentially two. One is immunosuppression by pharmacological intervention, and the other one is hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Now, these both these approaches are uh, ins insufficient and satisfactory because um, so the transplant is really has limited survival, and uh, um, the pharmacological treatment, if we look at the disease-free survival, is really insufficient in guarantee a long-life uh, um, control of the disease, and, uh, and therefore, you know, it's really, for the patient, is really uh, insufficient to reach the wellness. Um, so we have, of course, a spore, a, a gene therapy approaches, which are for the FOXP3 extremely demanding because FOXP3 is a transcription factor with differential expression in a different cell subset of the body. So it is very highly expressed and always expressed in FOXP3 positive T-regulatory cells, which are a tiny bit uh, cell subset in the blood, and whereas they, uh, it is transiently expressed, but also very important in controlling immune responses during, you know, in, in any T-cells that becomes activated and, uh, and fight against the pathogens. So, um, but because of the T-reg are the main um, a subset affected, we ask whether T-reg replacement therapy would be curative or even also if any, every patient would need a, a bone marrow transplantation or can be cured by this uh, T-reg cell approach. So the T-reg cells, uh, the, the, the gene therapy approaches that are nowadays um, uh, pursued by different groups um, are basically two. One is the functional replacement uh, of Treg, and the other one is the physiological regulated expression on of the gene in um, hematopoietic stem cells. And uh, at Stanford, we are developing both the Treg replacement therapy and the in gene editing uh, approach. With the TREG replacement therapy already um, several years ago, we have uh, observed that by uh, transducing uh, T cells, so normal CD4 effector T cells with uh, a wild type FOXP3 um, under a constitutive co promoter, we can generate a subset of cells which express FOXP3 at very high level, exactly like TREG, physiological TREG would do. And we can uh, do that in the autologous patient cells and um, then purify them and reinfuse them um, with very limited uh, toxicity. Um, these cells really become like the T-regulatory cells as they, you know, from the phenotypic point of view, but also in their suppressive activity. And they are very stable also when they are exposed to inflammatory condition. We are now towards the uh, phase one um, cell therapy um, development of, with this cell product. And we have already validated this cell product in, sev in several humanized 
these mice and also we are doing the GMP uh, process development with the idea of filing the IND to the FDA in the next year, in 2021, and the CERM funding for this uh, is really uh, essential. Basically, the other important aspect of this cell product is that once we use in IPEX, you know, can be uh, used also in many other different diseases, such as inflammatory bowel diseases, graft versus host, um, and other autoimmune diseases in which uh, Treg deficiency uh, is a problem uh, to be uh, overcome and is responsible of the pathology. And this cell product represent several advantages as compared to uh, Treg cell therapy products that are uh, already in the clinic. One of these is the guarantee of stability. The other one, for example, is the easy to be manufactured because we start, the starting uh, subset is uh, the um, CD4 positive T cells and not the T regulatory cells. But of course, the real question is treatment versus cure. Would the HSC-based um, gene editing for IPEX syndrome be really the ultimate goal uh, to cure IPEX uh, and to provide long-lasting wild-type FOXP3 gene expression under physiological regulation. With this question in mind, we are also uh, working on preclinical studies uh, using CRISPR-Cas9 for FOXP3 gene correction uh, in the um, hematopoietic stem cells of the patient, and we have already produced very nice data on feasibility of this approach. Uh, what we do in particular is we um, transfer the uh, FOXP3 gene, uh, the all coding sequence, so that we can, with one gene therapy approach, uh, cover all the different uh, mutated genes that the patients may have, and uh, we insert this coding sequence uh, after the regulatory sequence uh, together with a marker gene which allows us to follow the uh, cells that are, um, that are gen genetically modified. Uh, by doing so, we know that we can replace at least 50% of the normal physiological expression of FOXP3 and also of its function. And we can generate, uh, as we tested in vivo in humanized mice, we can generate functional T-regulatory cells, although in, in a little bit decreased amount as compared to normal uh, donor cells. So we are still working at the preclinical pre level on this uh, cell product. And um, so um, as a conclusion towards the cure of IPEX syndrome, of course, working here on that has been really increasing the awareness of IPEX disease, the unmet need, and the possibility of a better treatment. Treatment, uh, the support uh, of CERM on the uh, CD4 and VFOXP3 project um, allowing the IND filing is absolutely important and critical for the success of this project and the pioneering gene editing is also another promising innovative approach. And if you want to know more about what is life with IPEX, please go to the blog of CERM 
and uh, uh, listen to the story of uh, a dear patient of ours, uh, which is, uh, you know, was really so uh, kind to advocate for, for a cure. It's uh, touching. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Serm. And also thank you to all my FOXP3 team in the lab and Ron Carolo lab in which uh, with whom I always uh, work since uh, many, many years. And thank you all for your attention. So we have a question for uh, Pawash. Um, I know from taking care of, of Ronnie Pawash how much time you and your wife spent in the hospital uh, for an extended period of time. And um, it's, I guess it was up to four months, four or five months that, that you were there. So um, do you have any advice that you'd wanna give to us to researchers and clinicians um, for ways that, you know, maybe we can make your life better and uh, easier for dealing with these, for other parents that go through the same thing. Yeah, sure, <laughs> doctor. Um, I mean to say, first of all, I'm really glad that I'm part of this session and I'm able to share my story here. Ronnie is really doing good. So, uh, you know, it makes me really fortunate father to, uh, to share my story. Um, secondly, to answer this question, um, we uh, both, uh, me and my wife, we were so overwhelmed with the response that UCSF um, had given uh, from, the, from the very beginning. I mean to say when newborn screening was done and Ronnie was tested positive for a SCID, it was really devastating. Everything was shattering around us. We were thinking, okay, life is never going to take, uh, you know, life is never going to be same the way we were living here. We come from India, we are immigrants here and, and you know, trying to survive each and every day. And then you have, you have this uh, results coming out to be positive. We were pretty much sure that, you know, life is not going to be same. But then UCSF, Dr. Puck uh, gave us a call. Dr. Jennifer Puck gave us a call on, in, in March uh, 20th morning. And well, it was shattering on that particular day, but the way UCSF handled it, doctor, I, I, I just, it's beyond, beyond words. It's, uh, you know, the, the panel of doctors over there, the how we got admitted and, and uh, how we were being treated each and every day. Uh, social worker Sinwa was with us. You were visiting uh, each and every day to us. Uh, Dr. Puck was visiting us every day. All the doctor panels were visiting us every day, giving us ray of hope, trying to tell us how things will you know, unfold and how things will move forward. I really don't have any complaints. You know, I, I really, I don't have any words. I, I don't know. It's just because, you know, how I have seen, um, um, you know, my, my father was sick when, when I was child and, and uh, you know, um, I, we, we lost him. And I have seen the treatments happening in, in at least two countries, uh, India and Nepal, uh, in my life. And I, I don't know, because of that, I'm comparing the system over here. I'm comparing the doctors over here. That's only because uh, that, is, that, that could be the reason that I'm so overwhelmed. But um, it was really great the experience was really great. You know, I was able to, I, it's unbelievable that, you know, I was asked to choose the room with the view, uh, you know, which room would you like to have Ronnie in? How, how is that really possible? Is that something that hospital does? I, I really can't, I don't have words. And I was given to choose a room with the downtown view, or do you want a room with the, with the garden view? 
that, that there are there are nothing that I can complain of. There is one day I think in entire six months of period there was one day when we were um, shaken a little bit. Um, um, that was the day when we were talking about bone marrow transplant because that time Ronnie wasn't detected with X-linked skid and we were, uh, you know, kind of making my, uh, me ready for the donor and we were discussing about bone marrow transplant. I think all the doctors were in the room and uh, and it was being described for negative and positive thing about the bone marrow transplant in the room. So it was really hot and everybody was discussing about the topic and, and uh, we were given, so most of the things that we were discussing was about, you know, what would happen if it doesn't work. So when, when everybody left the room, it was, it was shattering. It was devastating. And I think uh, there were, there were a few doctors there and they looked up to our face and they said, I think, I think this session was a little bit overwhelming for you. So I think that particular thing could be, you know, uh, made with small chunks and could be delivered in a non-medical way um, for, for, uh, for parents like us who are not coming from medical background. So, uh, but, but then, you know, fortunately in a couple of days, Dr. Uh, Dr. Cohen, you, you came to room, uh, Dr. Puck was there and, and then you said, you know, he is axling this kid so we can talk about the gene therapy option. So I really can't complain, doctor. I think it was, uh, it was, I, I wouldn't say it's a blessing to, 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 to be in the hospital, obviously not, but, uh, but then how UCSF really handles their patient, how really their resources are available, nurses, doctors, all the systems that you have, you have two doors in the BMT, clean up yourself, sanitize yourself. I think that has become part of my life because of which I'm surviving COVID so easily. Sanitization is part of my life now. And we have learned a lot. The, the journey has really been very, very knowledgeable. Thank you, doctor. Um, I really can't, you know, uh, give any negative feedback. Sorry. <laughs> oh, thank you. It, it is particularly hard when you have a, a newborn baby and the baby looks fine as yeah. Ronnie did when he was born and you bring them home, bring the baby home and everything seems great. And then you get this phone call. And uh, not only does your child have this disorder, but it's potentially life-threatening and you got to bring the baby into the hospital and your baby may need a bone marrow transplant. Um, it's, it's, it's very, very stressful. And you guys did great. Um, but it's, it's very hard on the entire family. Well, thank you um, very much for, for being here and, and answering that. This is Dr. Farmer, and I can pick up the question from the chat. The question was, um, how critical is it to go in utero since we have also have some evidence that the post-birth outcome is good? And that's a really great question. So I honestly, if you think about a fetus for a minute, the fetus is in the constant state of not really even regenerating, but generating, right? you know, from, from one cell ultimately that then gets stimulated by another cell, you make eyeballs and spinal cords and all the amazing things that happens in the development of a fetus. So we think that the most powerful time for us to impact the development of the spinal cord is in this highly generative or regenerative time in utero. 
Um, and there's some data that suggests that the there's progressive loss of function during the course of gestation. So treating in treating the fetus with fetal cells, we think is the ideal combination. It doesn't rule out that we could have some effect after birth, and that will certainly be um, another area of study if we are successful in this environment. I will say that the Bulldogs have a slightly different form of spina bifida than the common type that humans have. Um, and the bulldogs that have, uh, that are, have a completely open spinal cord are usually, uh, don't survive to the rescue home. So those are, tend to be uh, bulldogs with a more uh, mild defect than we typically see in humans. So that's one of the reasons we think it is important Mm -hmm. to treat this in utero. Makes sense, yeah. And the, the other question that about stem cells, about, you know, the question was what happens to the stem cells after injection? We actually apply the stem cell directly, topically to the spinal cord and in just that one location. We have done several tracking studies to see if the stem cells um, found their way to other parts of the central nervous system. We have not seen that. Of course, one of the big concerns with stem cell therapy is, is there a risk for tumorigenicity down the road? Could these cells continue to develop into something else? That's one of the reasons that we favor mesenchymal cells, and we are looking only for a transient effect to to regenerate that normal spinal cord. We are not trying to replace those, the natural spinal cord cells with new cells. Um, we're not looking for engraftment. Uh, so we specifically want our cells to get in and do their job and then to disappear. And at least in the uh, animals that we were able to study, that has been the case. We found no evidence of the actual cells persisting at the time of birth. So we hope to be able to deliver this uh, powerful tool at the time it's needed and then for it to go away and not have to have, by the time they're born, the baby needs, will have a normal spinal cord is our goal. Now, we do realize that if we actually do protect the spinal cord, that we're gonna have to build a bone around it. So that's the next area of work is how to protect it long-term, but the first job is to rescue that spinal cord. We think the mechanism is an anti-apoptotic mechanism primarily, uh, but to be quite honest, um, I'm, I think it'll be a long time before we know the exact mechanism. We have another question for you, Dr. Farmer. By the way, thank you very much for that phrase, magical stem cell juice. That's my favorite <laughs> phase of the, of the conference so far. I'm going to find a way to work it into every presentation I make. Um, and so the question is, do you know what happens to the stem cells after injection? So um, we think that they just, they themselves, after they do their job, become... Uh, they, that they die. They, um, they don't engraft. They, we believe they live about four to six weeks, the cells themselves. Um, 
which is a little longer than we've seen uh, typical bone marrow cells live. We also think that they, uh, that's one of the things that's unique about the placental stem cell. We also think that they are in a fairly immune protected environment in the spinal cord that's sort of known and in the fetus because the fetus is relatively um, immunodeficient or immunoprotective. So the combination of the spinal cord and the fetus, the fetal environment makes those cells last a little longer than they would normally uh, last in other uh, situations. In the beginning, we thought we had to use autologous stem cells, just like with your baby, Pawash, where they used some of the baby's bone marrow that they genetically treated and then gave those cells back. That, that's, that's ideal because the baby is not going to reject those. Um, and, they'll, and hopefully they'll become incorporated is the goal in, in your case. In our case, we thought that we would have to use autologous cells and we were worried about how we would get those cells from a fetus. And I talked about the chorionic villus sampling. But with our other studies and in other animals and the fact that we only need the cells to live for a short period of time to do their job, we have actually created what are called allogeneic cells, cells from somebody else, cells from a donor like you were going to do. Um, but we, and we like the fact that eventually they get rejected or go away because we don't, in our case, we don't want them to stay long-term because they are somebody else's cells. So we don't want to get graft versus host, and we don't want to get tumors, and we don't want all those other things. So it turns out the placental cells borrowed from another placenta uh, are probably ideal for what we're looking for in this particular indication. So every disease is different, and the, the strategy for treatment is different as well. I think, you know, Rosa, as you I, uh, indicated in your work. Right. Um, we have another question, again, for Dr. Farmer. I apologize, Dr. Bocchetta. Uh, it's hard to compete with lambs and, and uh, bulldogs. Um, so, Dr. Farmer, do you think the MSCs can help in bone formation? And you were just talking about that. Since they can differentiate, they can change into bone cells. So, yes. So, interestingly, our placenta MSCs have a, a bit more... Um, flexibility in differentiation than just standard uh, adult bone marrow MSCs, which tend to just be mesenchymal, so the cartilage, the bone, and the um, uh, fat, we can see the, the, the endodermal, uh, I mean the ectodermal lineages as well, so this is the, the neurons, etc. So bone is really critical, and we are now going back to culture our cells in and sort of engineer our cells in a way that they uh, develop more along the bony lineages. And we're hoping to create potentially some kind of a composite so you could just treat at once. So you could protect the spinal cord and develop a bony covering at the same time. We were, I'd say, a few more years away from that with the help of CIRM we look forward to being able to not only to rescue that spine, but to protect it for life. I mean, if you think about it, you don't want your spine just under your skin. Um, if you 
thought it, your spinal cord just under your skin, you want it protected by something else. So yes, we think mesenchymal stem cells are also the right cell type to work on the bony development. Uh, Dr. Bacchetta, if we could bring you back into the conversation now. Um, although you're working on a very rare disease group, um, do you think that what you're learning now could have implications for other diseases on a broader group? Yeah, so thank you for the question. Um, first, you know, it's a rare disease, but it's not as rare as it, uh, it was thought until now, because um, this disease is thankful very early in life. So um, many patients didn't get a diagnosis until uh, recently. And um, so I'm, I'm not gonna say that it's gonna become a common disease, but it's definitely um, less uh, uh, rare than, than we thought. And uh, the second question, yes. So the, uh, this disease is really the prototype disease of lack of regulation. And so we, it has been instructive for many different diseases and also especially for autoimmune disease, which are not monogenic uh, as this one, but that result from dysfunction of the T regulatory cells because of many different factors, you know, some like genetic predisposition, but also environmental factor and so on. And also diseases in which you have both autoimmunity and autoinflammation. And, uh, you know, just to name some, uh, type 1 diabetes is one. Uh, inflammatory bowel disease is another one. Um, rheumatoid arthritis, other scleroderma, you know, you name it. All a lot of autoimmune diseases in which uh, there is a lack of regulation recognized by different mechanisms. And so the fact that we can act with autologous cells and trans, you know, convert them into T regulatory cells and give them back, it's an enormous advantage. Thank you for that. And we're getting close to time. So I think if we could, we could end with Pawash, um, because I think the, the goal of CIRM obviously is to accelerate stem cell treatments to patients with unmet medical needs. And so the patient is always at the center of everything we do. And I think they should always get the last word. Um, Pawash, what are your hopes now for Ronnie? I mean, do you still have concerns when you go out with him because of your early life experiences, things like vaccinations or other things? Do you worry about those? Not really, Kevin. Um, um, thank you for asking that question. Um, he's, at, at this moment, he is already vaccinated. He's already immunized with all kinds of vaccines that a normal child would get. So measles and, um, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, chicken pox and all other uh, immunization has already completed. We really don't fear to take him outside. Um, with this COVID situation, we, um, uh, you know, we think a little bit, you know, where to go, where not to go, and how many people are there. There is only one, um, uh, you know, hanging thought in back of our head is um, since it's a clinical trial, and we really don't have, as I was saying in my earlier video, that we really don't have a huge amount of data backing up. Um, from centuries, um, and and he's just um, you know the second kid from UCSF, fifth kid in United States. So obviously we are a little bit worried. Um, how is the future going to turn out to be? Uh, if there is something which we haven't seen, which we haven't 
realized in past. All the test results that are coming up today are absolutely good, absolutely perfect. It, it looks exactly similar to how other kids are doing. But obviously there is that lingering thought in back of our head that what will happen, but then we have faith. Um, we have faith in all the doctors. We have faith in, in the testing systems that we have here and we have faith in God. So um, in terms of taking him out, in terms of you know taking him to um, other kids, in fact, he has, before COVID, he went to school as well. He did very well for two to three weeks in this school and then the COVID started. So we had to stop the school. Um, but he's really doing good and um, we have faith that he would continue to do good, Kevin. Great, thank you, Pawash. Actually, I lied, we do have time for one more question. So Dr. Farmer, with your, with your clinical trial coming up in January, it's incredibly exciting. Um, how, you, how do you go about recruiting for that and, and making sure that they, if they, uh, you reach out to as broad a population as possible and make sure that everyone is as informed as possible? So thanks for that question, Kevin. You know, again, the answer is with the help of CIRM. I just want to take a minute to say this work that I'm doing probably could not have been done without CIRM because people just are nervous about things like the placenta and they're nervous about stem cells in lots of places. And CIRM has really made a difference to allow this work to go. And they, CIRM's been with me now for almost 10 years along the way. They're, they're very tough. CIRM is, I'm just gonna say it, <laughs> they are us scientists. There's no messing around. Um, but they've been uh, loyal supporters and as long as we prove ourselves. And so with their help, we will be starting this clinical trial and uh, with some money to also help get the word out to uh, sort of communicate to families, not just in California, but around the country if need be, to participate and volunteer like you did with Ronnie uh, in this trial. It's still scary to think about uh, being part of a clinical trial for a family, and I think especially for a baby. I also think when you're talking about your fetus, there's a small, you've gotta make a decision in a really short period of time, so it's difficult. and will be challenged because I think a lot of pregnant women, when they find out they have their baby has spina bifida, are going to want to do this. And we can only do one at a time in the beginning. The FDA is going to be very careful because this is a first in human fetal stem cell transplant. So um, we're going to disappoint some people as well and say, sorry, your pregnancy is not at the right time for this treatment. So it's going to be tough, but I know that with the help of CIRM and with the help of so many families who participated in the original fetal trial that uh, we will find families that want to help science and possibly help their child too. Thank you for that. And if, it's, if we're tough on you, it's only because we love the work that you do and we're so excited by it. And we want to make sure that we do everything we can to support you and to help make this succeed. Um, and so with that, I'd like to thank all of you for being this, Dr. Farmer, Dr. Pacheta, Koash, for making this such a fascinating and engaging um, seminar. And um, thank you very much.